On Monday mornings, uh, I am recovering and taking some time for Sabbath, take a few hours for Sabbath. And my normal practice is to kind of go for a run or go for a walk and, uh, and just go. And I was particularly tired this past Monday, so it was just more of a long walk. And, uh, but I found myself walking the shores of Lake Michigan. And it was an overcast day. The sun was not shining. But as I looked out on Lake Michigan, I had to stop because what I saw was just beautiful. And so I, so I just kind of just sat down at the, at the water's edge and just looked out. And I, was just, I just found myself being restored, staring out into kind of, it was a combination of blue and green and gray. And it was still, and the sky and Lake Michigan just sort of seemed to go on forever and just sort of drew me in. It was a quiet day, thankfully. It was a peaceful day. It smelled amazing. <laughs> and I just found myself, it doesn't always, does it? I did find myself being kind of drawn in by the beauty of Lake Michigan and kind of wanting more of the beauty. I came away more integrated and more whole. And that's a little bit of what beauty does. When we encounter true beauty, it kind of takes us in and invites us to participate in it in some way. And we can do two things with that beauty. We can either cultivate it or we can exploit it. We can cultivate the beauty that captures us or we can exploit the beauty that captures us. Cultivating beauty is as simple as appreciating it, savoring it, internalizing it, maybe even talking about it with others as I'm talking about it with you right now. I savored Lake Michigan all day long. Other people have taken the beauty of Lake Michigan and they've, they've created works of art out of it. Beauty calls for cultivation, making the most of it. Cultivating beauty is like finding an old little pebble on the side of the road and noticing something about it and dusting it off and polishing it until it shines and then creating a, a necklace out of it and then giving that necklace to someone that you love on their birthday. That is what cultivating beauty is like. You're taking the raw parts of creation that you, can see, you have a vision for it and, and you wipe away everything that is holding the beauty back and then you share it with someone else for their good, for their flourishing. That's what it's like to cultivate beauty. The other option that we have, though, with beauty is, is exploiting beauty. And exploiting beauty is a, a totally different activity. It's like finding an amazing, beautiful new car and stripping it down to its bare components that you then sell on the black market and leaving that car on the side of the road on cinder blocks. That's what it is like to exploit beauty. You take everything powerful about that beauty and you, for fun and profit, you take from it until you leave it, until you make it into something that's non-beautiful, something that's banal. It's a brutal process and it happens every day in our lives. The one way that it happens is through pollution. I'll tell you that before I got up from my encounter with Lake Michigan, floating by was something that looked to me to be something like a Twinkie. <laughs> and all of a sudden, my vision was brought low. 
I was seeing a little bit of garbage that even the seagulls had left aside. We can use beauty, we can just go, oh yeah, that's beautiful. It also happens to be my personal garbage can. That's what it's like to exploit beauty. Or, or maybe take this example. Has, have you ever loved a song so much, it like spoke to your angst like no other song could? And it was just a beautiful song, it just captured you. And then a company took that song because they knew that about you and they turned it into a commercial. And then it's like, I love that song. But when I think about that song now, all I can think about is carpets. <laughs> Tan carpets. You know, pornography is another way that beauty is exploited. Pornography takes the beauty of the human body as well as the essential glory of the sexual drive to be sexually connected, and it exploits both of those. It just turns it into a money machine. You know, this person is the supply, this person is the demand, and I'm going to create this so that I get rich. It exploits everybody. We can cultivate beauty or we can exploit beauty. When we exploit beauty, it becomes just boring and banal and degraded. And then that same object communicates hopelessness to the world and grim survival. And there are forces in our city that exploit beauty every single day in every sector of life. This is happening in ways that are seen and unseen in education, in the arts, religion, law, technology, economics, and even in the privacy of our own homes and apartments. Beauty is exploited until it becomes banal for people's fun and profit. What's more, some of us feel called in this environment to cultivate beauty. There are many artists among us, whether you call yourself and think of yourself as an artist, or, or even though you, you want to act as an artist, we're not sure how we can, we have a longing to create beauty out of the stuff that we see every day, and yet we live in an environment of exploitation, and we're wondering, how, how am I going to survive if I want to spend my best energies creating good art? Will my art be exploited? Will something I'm trying to turn into something beautiful be just someone else's commercial? And if it's so costly to cultivate beauty as an artist living in Chicago, why bother? And I want to talk to you today. I want to give a specific word to the artists among us. What could possibly the beauty of heaven have to offer? The beauty of heaven which has been sentimentalized and made trivial and trite and kitsch. As one theologian said... Um, the church isn't the only place to find sentimental kitsch, but it's a good place to start if you want to find it. So what possibly could the beauty of heaven have to offer us who have a longing for beauty to create it? Could it restore our world? Could the beauty of heaven not just be a religious idea, but actually a force in Chicago? And could we participate in that? You know, the artist of Revelation is an artist of sorts. He's using the medium of words to describe a beautiful city that he was privileged to see. He was privileged to see it, and he pictures heaven in kind of a surprising way, a way that, that gives us hope. If we see it as it is, he's taken us up to a high mountain, as it were, 
where we get to glimpse what he glimpsed, not as, with, as much, uh, with as much precision as he saw it, but nevertheless enough so that it could change our church and change our life. There are three things that we need to see about the beauty of heaven this morning. First, we're going to see that heaven cultivates the beauty of humanity. Heaven cultivates the beauty of people. And the beauty of people needs to be cultivated, not exploited. Secondly, uh, heaven cultivates the beauty of creation. Okay, the environment. It brings out the potential beauty and goodness of creation. And thirdly, heaven cultivates the beauty of culture. Heaven cultivates the beauty of human culture. Everything that human beings are doing to make something good of the world, as Andy Crouch described culture, heaven cultivates that. Heaven is like a magnet for the best of that. And this has implications for our lives. There's a beautiful reality at the center of heaven that's reversing what we've done to creation. It's reversing the machine of exploitation. And since we're citizens of heaven who are rooted in Chicago, we can join this act of cultivation for the sake of Chicago. We can join this act of cultivating beauty for the sake of Chicago. John presents this as a reality. John the Revelator presents this as a reality that has been kick-started. And it is in operation now. It is happening now. It is happening in our city. It's a reality that we can enter into. It's a reality that we can enjoy. So it's so important for us to not glaze over John's description of the coming city because it is popping with reality. It will change the way we operate. So let's look first. Heaven cultivates the beauty of humanity. Heaven offers, Isaiah has this uh, Isaiah 61 has this image of, instead of ashes, a crown of beauty. Instead of ashes, a crown of beauty. That's what heaven does with humanity. That's what heaven heaven wishes to cultivate, the beauty of every man, woman, and child, and place a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Revelation 21.9 says this, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of uh, the seven last plagues. And this time he brings good news. He spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now the bride here, who's the bride? The bride is the church. The bride is the people of God. Earlier in his book, John the Revelator uh, describes the church as being pretty wayward. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, giving way to the same old boring temptations, being tempted, a, a wayward people filled with sinners and pe- filled with pride, filled with cowardice, filled with cold hearts, just like the, the church you've experienced, full of imperfect people. And then later on in Revelation, the church is pictured as a woman in, in the pains of childbirth who's in danger of extinction. Like the world systems and the devil are trying to devour her and destroy her. So so John is picturing in his letter that this woman, the church, is sort of like 
sinful and too weak to defend herself. Just very unimpressive. She's like that rough stone in the dirt road. She's just been walked on. And she's just covered with dirt. And if someone takes notice of her, it's only to exploit her. We might be tempted to look upon the church with contempt or call her pathetic up to this point. And by extension, we might be tempted to see all of humanity this way. Wicked, weak, boring, predictably broken. And this is how humanity is presented in many sectors of our world, many sectors of Chicago. Humanity is treated with contempt, even in the high arts, even in education. Some of the, some of the leading thinkers, this is their brave new conclusion, that we are no more than robots and animals that are just so predictable. Our city is filled with contempt for people. Make no mistake. And yet, John sees that the city of heaven has taken that old stone, that old pebble that everyone's been walking on, and cultivated its beauty, put its beauty on display. He sees the church, the people of God, adorned with the glory of God, glowing with the glory of God. Verse 10 says this. Don't, don't miss the emotion of this verse. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And the spirit showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now I know we're in the Midwest here. But I want you to imagine yourself on the top of the highest mountain that you've ever seen or heard about. I want you to imagine standing at the summit of that mountain where there are only evergreen trees and eagles amid rugged peaks, breathing rarefied air. And next to you is the Spirit of God filling your imagination and your mind and your breath with a vision, the most beautiful, breathtaking vision you've ever seen. In fact, you couldn't see it with human eyes because it transcends the five senses. And you see a grand city, larger than any other city you've ever seen, massively huge and overflowing with color, colors you've never seen. Glowing brighter than any bulb or any sun that you have ever laid your eyes on. And it's coming down out of the sky. And you see the bride having the glory of God with a radiance like a most rare jewel, a jasper clear as crystal. See, it, it, John's using, some of you who are artists know that you have to do this. You are, you are imperfectly bringing to sight or to smell or... or uh, to another one of the five senses, something that only you can see. And you're using the media that you have available to you, and you know that the vision's going to be imperfect. Do you see how John, he has to sort of take this image from earth and this image from earth and this image from earth and combine them in a way that's never been combined before so that you can see something you haven't seen before. What he sees is the bride. He sees humanity, the people of God who have been united with Jesus Christ 
cultivated with beauty. Her beauty has been cultivated until it shines. And the people of God are adorned with the glory of God. She wears God's glory like a radiant garment. She dons God's presence like a most rare jewel. God's beauty has kind of enveloped her without overshadowing her. Humanity's beauty has been cultivated. And verse 12 says this, it, it had a, high, uh, a great high wall with 12 gates. We're not done with the humanity piece here. Okay, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. They were inscribed. And then on these three gates, on the north three gates, the south and the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, this is important. Here the people of God form a city. This, the city is formed and named after the people of God. And what you have is you have a cube, okay? And it's got four sides that you can enter, okay? And on each side, there's three gates. And underneath the city is a foundation. 12, uh, there's 12 foundations. It's a heavily foundationed city. <laughs> and each of the foundations have names of specific people all of whom have been united with God, all of whom represent the people of God. Now, here's what one pastor theologian has to say about these names being displayed in the gates and the foundation of the city of heaven. He says this, It is possible, I suppose, to idealize these names and to use them as symbolic representation of holy ancestors, but only for people who are ignorant of their life stories. The marvel in the stories of those 12 sons of Israel was not in their sanctity nor of their heroism, but that God willed to use such intractable and unattractive human lives to lay the groundwork for the great salvation work that he completed in Jesus. We have stories of brutality, fraud, violated and violent sex, cowardice, but in and through these life stories, God persistently brought about the salvation of wretches that didn't deserve to be saved and revealed his glory. My friends, that is what God does with people. And that is what heaven is like. It's full of people whose beauty has been cultivated. Don't you see what God has done with the broken and boring sinners who came before us? He's cultivated their beauty. He's adorned every one of them. He's given a prominent stake to them in his great city. Maybe you feel unworthy of God's love this morning. You feel broken. You feel boring. Jesus wants to adorn you with the glory of God forever. Along with all of his people. He wants to envelop you without overshadowing you. All of us who are part of the heavenly city are sinners saved by grace. We're broken and beloved. In another part of scripture, we, the people of God, are described as a kind of a living building, kind of an organic yet strong building. A temple has been renewed and is actually growing forever. A dwelling place for God where every gift and background 
are kind of joined together to form a dwelling place for God. Maybe you've encountered someone who seems to glow. Have you ever encountered someone and it's like, wow, that person is really seeming, they're beaming and they're glowing. That's because the beauty inside of them, the beauty that is a part of their created existence in the image of God has been cultivated and then it's been put on display in some way. And can you imagine adorning the people in your life with that glory? Can you imagine being part of the ministry because this is what the ministry of the beauty of heaven, cultivating the beauty of the poor, cultivating the beauty of your neighbor, so that they beam, because you have placed a crown of glory on their head instead of ashes. Can you imagine all of the stressed out people in your life, the needy people in your life, the frustrating people in your life, the people who feel they have nothing to contribute, glowing with the glory of heaven? This is the way of heaven. That is a ministry of heaven on earth, cultivating the beauty of humanity. Secondly, so heaven doesn't just cultivate the beauty of people, cultivates the beauty of creation. It cultivates the beauty of the natural environment that we find ourselves in here on earth. Read with me in verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. So it's a cube, okay? And he measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, is this metaphorical or is this literal? It's probably both. He says that the human measurement and the angel's measurement are the same, and he's being precise Yet at the same time, we do know that heaven surpasses our imagination. But let's take this measurement and see what it, how big the city of uh, the New Jerusalem would be, which is not the only city in heaven according to other parts of Scripture. Um, but this is one part, this is a central part of heaven. Um, so according to the angel's measurement, which is the human measurement, apparently, this city is... 1,400 miles in length, in width, and height. That is roughly half the United States, but it's also 1,400 miles into the air, okay? And who knows what's happening above ground level? I mean, this is heaven, so all kinds of things can be created. It's, it's 1,400 miles cubed. Chicago is 230 square miles. Heaven, or the New Jerusalem, which is the center of heaven, is 1,400 cubed miles. And that's just the city. That's just this city. This is a massive, massive, imagine a city covering half the United States. It's just the city. It's a garden city, sure. There's a lot of, you know, natural things in that city, but it is the place where God dwells and human beings dwell. So... Let's see how heaven has taken the jewels of creation and put them on display. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And he mentions the jewels, which I cannot pronounce right. Um, and then the 12 gates, verse 21, 
were pearls. Like, so it's a door, but it's a pearl. (laughs) Have you ever seen a pearl that large? It's a very exquisite pearl. Now, this is just the outside of the city. This is just the outside of the city. Now, he's able to see inside. We'll talk about what he sees as soon as he looks inside. But this is just the foundations and the walls, and it's massive, and it's beautiful. It, it's the expanse of holiness, as one commentator noted. All the raw materials of creation have been cultivated and put on display. Pearl-like materials for the gates, colorful and rare jewels have been mined, and they have been carefully set in place. Everything fits together. Nothing is half done. Nothing is wasted. This vision of, hell, uh, of heaven helps us see that the natural will, uh, world is filled with beauty that is ready to be cultivated for the glory of God. If we treat creation like a garbage can, all we're going to do is exploit the beauty around us. All we're going to do is exploit natural resources. That's what we'll do if we don't have a vision of what it could be. If we don't have a vision of the heavenly city, we won't have a vision of of, of taking beauty and, and cultivating it. Here's what Mako Fujimara says about cultivating natural beauty in his book, Culture Care. He says this, when we acknowledge the gratuitous nature of life, meaning the, the generous nature of life, not the small-minded way of looking at things, but the gratuitous, the generous way of, of life, not least the world's inordinately diverse beauty, gratitude galvanizes us to ask and welcome questions that reach beyond our own context and experience, meaning we're not just surviving anymore. We're seeing the expansiveness of the beauty and the generosity of heaven. And here's what he says. Artists, at their best, help us with such questions by presenting an expansive vision of life that reveals beauty in ever wider zones. Say that again. Artists, at their best, help us with such questions by presenting an expansive vision of life This is what artists are doing. You're giving us a vision of life that reveals something we couldn't see before, which is beauty in ever wider zones. Not beauty for our survival or exploitation, but beauty in ever wider zones. They can reveal new facets of human flourishing, even in the midst of tragedy or horror, pointing towards hope and meaning. Even when things are bad, even when everyone else is in the business of grim survival and exploitation, artists made in the image of God who have been filled with the spirit of God and the vision of heaven can help us see what we cannot see when we're just afraid. In other words, if we're going to start cultivating beauty instead of exploiting it, we need a beautiful vision like the one here in Revelation. And we need artists of every stripe who can help us see that vision in fresh ways. So heaven, it's cultivating the beauty of humanity, bringing out the created goodness of men, women, and children, making them a dwelling place for the glory of God, which shines brighter than we could ever imagine. And then he cultivates, heaven cultivates the beauty of creation, the environment, the natural resources around us. And then finally, heaven cultivates the beauty of culture, the beauty of what we've made with the world. The book's and the parks, and the works of art, and the meals. All that we have done to make of the world, the best things that we have to offer each other in love, heaven cultivates 
the beauty of human culture. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, and the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. <laughs> its lamp is the Lamb. Here is the city that shines like no other city has shined. And its lamp is the Lamb who was slain. Here we have Jesus Christ at the center of heaven. He's the beautiful person. At the very center of the beauty of heaven is a person who is more beautiful than we could ever imagine. He's the one who entered the human city so that he could fill it with its light. And this lamb was exploited to fill the city with beauty, to restore our beauty to restore creation's beauty at great personal cost, at great pain. Jesus Christ took upon our exploitation and our pain, and he restored our beauty. You know, a sunrise, if you ever experienced it, can be um, not only a source of beauty, but a source of hope. And especially before the advent of, of kind of artificial light, for so many people for most of history, the sunrise was the source of hope. They made it. They made it through the night. They're going to make it. The light of Christ is both beautiful and it is our salvation. It renews us. It leads us. It cultivates us and the world. And in heaven, this light, the light of the Lamb, who is the Lamb, becomes a magnet, a global magnet for every kind of human culture for the best forms of cultural beauty. Verse 24 says this, by its light, by the light of the Lamb, um, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. You know, last week we talked about how the kings, a lot of the kings of the earth had become kind of lackeys. They had become sort of like um, just uh, pawns for injustice. They had allowed injustice because they thought that it would make them great and that it would make them rich and make them amazing. But here you have kings who are looking to the light and they have the great honor of being led into the city by the people of their own nation and by the light of the Lamb. Verse 25 says this, and its gate will never be shut by day. The gates of heaven never be shut by day and there'll be no night there. They will bring it, uh, they, the nations will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So if you're hanging on to injustice, if you're hanging on to exploitation, if that's your plan, then the Lord God says to you, thy will be done, okay? I'm not going to force you into my city. I'm not going to force you to trust my son, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here what we have is the glory and the honor of the nations that are drawn by the light of Christ into the heavenly city. And, and, and there, the best cultural artifacts that we know of in our lifetime find an eternal stake in the greatest city of the world. We should expect to find art galleries or something better in heaven. We should expect to find libraries or something better in heaven. We should expect to find sculptures and parks and restaurants and schools and research centers expunged of their exploitation and radiating with glory. 
This is the grand and great city that we are all called, called to be a part of. And the light of the Lamb is there, and it's drawing in and cultivating the best parts of human culture. And the light of the Lamb is not just there, but it's here, my friends. Without John the Revelator, without that artist using his medium of words soaked in Scripture from the Old Testament, we might not see that the light of the Lamb is there, and we might not see that the light of the Lamb is here. And you know what? Without you, we won't continue to see it. Without you, without your medium, without your vision of heaven, we won't see it. One author says, earth is crammed with heaven. But you know what? Most of us don't see it. Earth is crammed with heaven, but we need artists to show us. Chicago is filled with the beauty of heaven. Yeah, it's filled with exploitation, but that's not its true future. That it's, that's a rumbling end to the exploited parts of Chicago. Chicago is filled with heaven. Most of the time it goes unseen. The Lord of heaven is, is here. It's cult, he's cultivating the beauty of humanity and creation and culture, and he's calling you to join his work using the media with which you have skill. Anyone can do this, but you know what? Artists, we need you to lead the way. We need sculptors. We need actors. We need writers. We need people who sketch and paint, musicians and bakers and geologists and fashion designers and graphic artists using every media available to cultivate the beauty around us to get us beyond that vision of grim survival, which is not a vision. It's a nightmare. Who's going to wake us up from the nightmare besides artists who can show us the glory of the heavenly city, which is cultivating beauty at every level of creation? That is ministry. It's the ministry of heaven, and you have been ordained to do that. We have a picnic today. We have artists who are taking raw material of people and community and food and parks and neighborhood and creating something beautiful out of it to show us the feasting of heaven, to show us the community of heaven. We need artists inside and outside the church creating art that will give us this vision. We need it done in ordinary time like we are now. We need it done during Holy Week. We need it done during Lent. We need it done during Eastertide. We need other artists who will, who will display other forms of liturgical art and scripture reading. Art that will be displayed here in the Kiva to give us the vision, art that will be displayed outside the Kiva in other neighborhoods. That is the ministry of heaven. Can you, like the lamb of the great city, endure the pain necessary to cultivate the beauty around you? And it is painful, is it not? N.T. Wright says this, when art comes to terms with both the wounds of the world and the promise of resurrection and learns how to express and respond to both at once, we will be on the way to a fresh vision, a fresh mission. Can you show us, can you show us, are you willing to endure the pain to show us that vision? I know it's painful. I know it's hard. I know there's a lot of undoing. There's a lot of redoing. There's a lot of sketches. Can you come to terms with the wounds of the world and the promise of resurrection? Can you, with Jesus, in some ways, find expression for the exploitation so that people can have a way to mourn what's happened? 
and at the same time show them a vision of what's coming, a vision of resurrection? Can you be as compassionate and patient as Jesus Christ as you do? Because you're going to need his power. You will be offering something beautiful from him, and he is offering his power to you. It will take attentiveness, friends. It will take creativity. It will take a lot of practice. It will eat up your schedule, which you are protecting. Can you open up your schedule as an artist to give us a a vision of the beauty of heaven? We are citizens of heaven. By nature, we are cultivating beauty in Chicago. If we are citizens of heaven, that is what we're doing by our very nature as citizens. And the path of discipleship is to learn how to do that and to help our city see its true nature. We're not in the nightmare of grim survival, my friends. We are citizens of a great city that will never end, whose beauty will be multiplied into the ages to come. And you are called to be a part of it and to show us what it looks like. Let me pray for you and us. Lord, give us a vision of the city to come and give us one small way that we can begin to cultivate the beauty of the people around us, the nature around us, and the culture around us, and to do so with your power. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.